Hello, welcome back to the David Watson podcast. Today I spoke with Max Marshall, the author of Among the Brothers, Paternity Crime Story. The book's so good and got so much into the depth of what really goes on with fraternities in American universities. It has been in the British Guardian and the New York Times. It was a fantastic talk. It would be a great listen. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, welcome to the David Watson podcast, and thank you very much for joining me. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Ah, that's good. Um, your, your book, the... I don't know where to start with this. It's Amongst the Brothers, isn't it? A fraternity crime story. But <laughs> as, as I was reading it, I couldn't help thinking of places like Eton and Cambridge and Oxford. Absolutely, yeah. And And then, you know... You know, like jobs for the boys in the Masons. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, damn, how? Because on one hand, it's like, how far down the rabbit hole do you go? But like the the book says, if you look at how many people have been president and the the, the crimes that people don't get charged for, it's just like that sounds very similar to the UK. <laughs> Definitely, and I, I mean, I think. Uh... It's funny because there's a tendency in America, I think, to think that uh, a lot of the sins of America sort of uh, flow downhill into the South. And, you know, racism is a specifically Southern problem and fraternities are a specifically Southern problem. But ultimately, what you see in fraternities is this elite system that certainly exists in the South, but it's really not that different from eating clubs at Princeton you know, secret societies at Yale, final clubs at at um, Harvard, and then, of course, the fraternity system at Dartmouth. And all of these things were modeled after the British boarding school system. So if you look at, like, for instance, the history of hazing, there was something called fagging that was, you know, basically a sort of indentured servitude that first-year boys at Eton and other boarding schools would have to do um, and sort of still exist in a way. Um, and that very much inspired the sort of American system of hazing, which sort of began at Harvard and then, if anything, trickled south from Harvard. Um, but ultimately, wherever you see elite boys from sort of ruling class families congregate, drink together, haze each other, become men together, and then help each other out in the world, you're seeing a very old system at play that is not just an American problem. No, I definitely. How much of it though is because I definitely agree it happens. I live in the UK, I've seen it happen for centuries. It's um, yeah. you, you know, you could argue that Europe and kind of invented that sort of thing. Definitely, so, yeah. Um, but how much of it is just tribalism at a different level? Because I, you could probably say that you and I would be the the same with our close circle of friends, That's the type of people we hang around with that. We we would do the same. We just don't have the same level of power, money, and influence. Yeah, I mean, I do think there is something to be said about just like any group wants to congregate with other people with similar backgrounds. Um, I I do think it is it's a bit more deliberate and intentional than just sort of normal tribalism of you know sort of meeting your friends at the pub. If you look at the history of fraternities. You know, fraternities didn't exist at all until the 1800s. 
in America. And that's because up through the 1800s, only elite students went to American universities. Only the upper class yeah. was sort of showing up to college. And then what happened in the 1800s is all of a sudden you had uh, these universities started programs to study to become a minister and a lot of sort of farm kids, you know, kids from rural backgrounds started showing up to learn to be ministers. And all the kids from the more elite backgrounds basically said, well, we don't want to drink with these guys. So how can we create a club just for us, for us to kind of have our own separate campus? And each time universities opened up more, fraternities got more exclusive. So, you know, after the rural kids showed up, then you started having Jewish students showing showing up. Fraternities, next thing you know, oh, well, we, we have a Christian mission. And then, you know, heading sort of into the 1920s, there's all this anxiety about racial integration, immigrants, and all of a sudden, these fraternities start basically some of them saying, you know, there's an Aryan blood requirement. Um, yeah. And so, in that sense, I mean, you could call it tribalism, but it's also very deliberate, very structural, and it's it's in their you know their writing. It's not just uh, the sort of psychology of like, oh, I went to high school with this guy, so therefore I want to party with him. Although that's part of it, it's also oh, if you look at our documents, we're sort of you know you have to be a a, a white Christian knight to 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 party with us. Yeah, I mean, because it's definitely. Um... I mean, I suppose the significant difference at its most basic level and most basic sort of premise is that it's a, uh, an access restriction to move ahead of something or move into something. You know, you, you either yes. these criteria from birth or you don't get access. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that's something a lot of people don't understand about the fraternity system. I, I think... Often it's written about in this sort of class blind way, which I think, you know, is also a problem we have in the States that, you know, you for, for everything that happens in the UK, class blindness is not a problem. But I think the sort of the writing about fraternities and about power in the US, it's often through the valence of gender or the valence of race. And it's very much ignoring, although those are, of course, at play, class and if you look at fraternities, like there are fraternities that have million dollar a year social budgets. There are sororities that do zip code checks to make sure that their members are from the right neighborhoods. Um, and it really is sort of this concentration of wealth. The statistic I found while I was doing reporting for this book is 75% of all money donated to universities in the States comes from fraternity alumni. And or Greek life alumni. And that's 2% of the population. So 75% of the money, 2% of the population, that's class. That's a concentration of just so much wealth. And I think it's hard to understand this system until you kind of understand that. Yeah, I, I, I think you made an interesting point that people in Great Britain, um, we, we probably understand class system better than most people. But it's uh, it, I would say, yeah, probably the, the most, it's, at least in terms of fiction, like the best writing in class of perhaps any nation, <laughs> for, yeah. for better or worse. Yeah, I think the Brits sort of uh, wrote the book on class. Yeah, and and weirdly, we're probably one of the most classless societies now, at least uh, at first viewing. And yeah. our, there is still a class system. It's just it's expanded a lot a lot more once upon a time there was working class and 
that that was basically poor people and then it was kind of lower middle class middle class upper class and then you know sort of you then kind of climbed a little bit higher before you eventually got to royalty and there still yeah. probably is a bit of a class system where you've got the political elite the business elite and then the royal family or sort of noblemen for want of a better term with titles yeah and they kind of all intermingle and they they all kind of have their own place and then there's everything else is below that yeah you know so and but we like like you say it's part of our history so we don't see it as anything different whereas i think people in america don't believe they have a class system or that that's at least me looking in well it's it's funny because i think in america yeah we talk about we don't we can't talk about class directly it's always indirectly you know it and sometimes it's through these other valences of um you know identity like we were talking about but it also comes out in sort of conspiratorial thinking you know it, when americans are obsessed with the idea of like the the illuminati or the, the masons or some sort of world order you can see it in you know <laughs> QAnon and like it, there are all sorts of you know the obsession with epstein there are all sorts of ways it plays out. And, but there's this idea of there's this sort of shadowy group that's controlling things. And the funny thing is, like another word for that is a ruling class, right? It's, yeah. You have a group of people who are, who are ruling uh, sort of the affairs of a nation, but we don't use that language. Instead, it's sort of like this sort of, you know, uh, putting putting photos on the cork board and trying to make connections of you know the who's ruling us um but ultimately more so than the illuminati or the masons something as banal as greek life really shows like what a sort of a secret society ruling class looks like right i mean you're basically looking at uh uh you know the statistic you you mentioned in the beginning all but four presidents since 1825 um, over 80% of Supreme Court justices, uh, Fortune 500 CEOs, all were fraternity men. And now if I, you know, changed out the word fraternity men for Illuminati members, you would go, oh my God, see, like, this is, this is the, the sort of shadow cabal ruling our world. But instead, it's the more banal fact of, oh, it's a bunch of rich kids coming together, drinking together, helping each other. And uh, the ruling class continues to rule as they sort of always have. Yeah, I'm, I remember, and there's a point to this because it's going off tangent a little bit. Many, many years ago, I worked for uh, a dealership, Volkswagen Audi dealership. And I remember this guy coming in. He was, pro I would have been about 20, and he was about the same age as me. And he turned up, he, he, he was a nice fella, nice lad. Uh, he had an Audi convertible. And I'm just like, and, and, and you're talking like mid nineties. And I'm like, that's a 45 okay. grand motor. And I just, I couldn't help myself. It's like, you know, got chatting to him. Like, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a stockbroker. Oh, right. And he basically bought the car off his bonus. And I was like, oh, how did you yeah. get into that? Oh, my friend's dad gave me a job. And I was just like, <laughs> right. So th there's no entrance yeah. to this then other than your mate's dad. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's the way of the world. And I think that's something people in fraternities understand is there's actually a pretty good rational choice theory 
reason for joining a fraternity. And it's quite simple. It's like guys will say it very simply. It's not what you know, it's who you know. You know, yeah. there are these cliches, but like I think guys join these systems. People basically think another misnomer about fraternities is guys get tricked into joining them. It's like, oh, you're an impressionable freshman. Some charming older guy meets you, uh, talks you into coming to this cool party. Everybody seems so nice. And the next thing you know, you're getting in a basement, getting hazed and tortured. It's the biggest mistake of your life and you're traumatized forever. And the only reason you would stick around is because of Stockholm syndrome. I think that a lot of fraternity writing kind of trends that way. But when you're in the system and when you talk to other people in the system, most guys know they're going to get hazed when they come in. They know exactly how bad it is. I remember being a senior in high school and it's all we could talk about in Dallas at my like private school, you know, because everyone was going to go into fraternities. And like we all knew what the best fraternities were and which ones had the worst hazing. They were always the same. The best fraternities had the worst hazing. But it's worth it in part because, you know, the parties, the girls, the sense of social prestige, the fact that your social life is all taken care of, but also you can get a better job going through that system with a B or C average than you sometimes can like hustling your way through, you know, getting really good grades, but then graduating, not knowing anyone. And that goes against the sort of meritocratic American myth. But I think, you know, maybe to someone in the UK, that's less surprising. Like a mediocre Etonian is going to do better in the job market than somebody who really hustled their way through, you know, their local school. Um, and that's, that's kind of been the way of the world for as long as, you know, uh, power has been concentrated in the hands of, you know, a landowning few. Yeah. I mean, in, in the UK, I'd say probably the significant difference, I'm not sure how much it would apply. I've just, uh, my niece, who's 12, 13, just popped into my head, and I'm not sure how much she would understand this these days. Um, but I, yeah. I remember at some point in my teenage life, early adult life, learning that the thing that massively changed in the UK that was a significant difference, and across Europe, was the two world wars. Because yeah. until then, you typically work in your area, and trying to get another job somewhere was nigh on impossible because then you have to write to your boss for a reference and your boss could just say, no, no, he's unreliable. You don't want them. They'd believe him. So you, it was very difficult yeah. to move around. And yeah. the Industrial Revolution helped a little bit because people could then kind of leave the land and go into factories and stuff. But you could still, you then just, it's, it's another boss. It's another person who controls your life. Once the war happened and conscription yeah. and they're just even after the wars there just wasn't enough workforce to go around people could were free to choose but in terms of yeah. history that's a hundred years ago for the uk and you could argue yeah. the same for the rest of europe whereas in america people were going there from the 1700s onwards with this the land is free we can do what we want it's there for the enterprising and so th that, that yeah. kind of history like you said that there's a myth behind the truth Definitely. Well, also, if you look at sort of inequality trends, both in the US and in Europe, there was a massive boom in income mobility post-World War II, specifically. Basically, yeah. the 50s through the 80s, all of a sudden, there was this time, it's certainly in the US, but also, I think, in the UK, where you could, if you worked hard from a lower middle class background, could sort of work your way up into the, the professional class without, 
you know, needing too many insane breaks. You could sort of just, if you put in the calories, it could happen. But I do think if you look at the Gini coefficient curve of inequality from like the 80s to now, in some ways, we're sort of back to that pre-World War order in terms of inequality. Like, yeah. in, you know, because basically the Gilded Age through World War One was this sort of, and I do think you can see that playing out in so many different ways. Sorry, my, for some reason, my internet just off then. Just as you said, through the Gilded Age. It just... Oh, I was just saying, so the, the Gilded Age through World War One was sort of this, what seemed like a peak of sort of as much wealth as sort of thought possible being concentrated in as few hands globally. And then, you, you know, it leads to the rise of <laughs> nationalism and all sorts of things. And I think if you look at the Gini coefficient, which measures inequality, it's basically there again. We're basically at the same level of inequality as we were before the world wars. Um, and so that sort of beautiful post-war boom and mobility has sort of curdled into to what we have now. What got you on to write in the book? So, yeah, I mean, it was a pretty simple thing at first. I had been in a fraternity from 2012 to 2016, which is the same time that this book takes place. And I'd seen a lot of Xanax. I'd seen a lot of fraternity guys blacking out on Xanax, getting addicted to Xanax, dealing Xanax. And I felt like none of us had really been warned about it. And so I started looking for... Uh, other stories about Xanax on college campuses. I kind of wanted to find like a page-turning crime story to write about it. So I did the very investigative journalist thing of Googling Xanax bust fraternity. And the first result was this article at the about College of Charleston, these these guys who were part of a, a drug trafficking ring that had sold, they said, 44,000 Xanax pills. Then I started doing some reporting, found out it was actually closer to 3 million pills and the police had never reported it. And so uh, that was sort of the jumping off point. And then you find a murder and these student deaths and this really nationwide trafficking network that amounted to the biggest college drug network ever discovered, you know, most of it running through the fraternity system. It just became clear that there was a, there was a much bigger story here. How much kickback did you get? You know, at, at first you just kind of get stonewalled. And then you start getting breakthroughs and, you know, one person talks to you and realize, you know, you know what you're talking about. And ultimately, I was able to talk to, I don't know, something like 125 people or something. And then you get all the police files and the court documents. That was hard. You had to basically, you know, I was kind of getting stonewalled by the police, but you find like lawyers or things that'll give you the documents. Um, but most of the kickback was sort of, you know, fraternities writing letters saying they're going to sue you or, or that kind of thing. Um, but Harper Collins has a great legal team and, you know, you fact check it a bunch of times and just you stand by your reporting. Was there anything that you discovered that surprised you? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I think in our era, you sort of become numb to the news cycle and you kind of start to believe nothing can surprise you. But I, but I do think in my head, I thought eventually these guys were going to face some consequences. Because in some ways, the book to me was like, oh, the consequence of a world without consequences. So you see, 
you know, if you can get away with the DUI and your parents have the best lawyer who can sort of step in and then you get arrested for simple possession of marijuana and then you're, the lawyer steps in for that. And then, and you know, these are all things I have in the book and you burn down a log cabin with your fraternity brothers and then the alumni step in and kind of pay for everything. And then, you know, a bigger drug char charge or a kidnapping charge and all of it goes away eventually you'll do a crime that's big enough that you will sort of run into a wall. But even in this drug ring, which, like I said, 3 million Xanax pills, also uh, a few pounds of cocaine, a few dozen pounds of weed, uh, acid, MDMA, assault rifles, a grenade launcher, all these deaths. Ultimately, right now, there's only one boy from the kids arrested at the College of Charleston who's still in prison. Uh, one of the fraternities got kicked off campus for four years and is back. Another didn't leave campus at all. Most of the people involved, you know, never were charged. Some got probation. And you can go on the public Instagrams of these fraternities and they're still throwing absolutely wild parties after the book came out. So I think just the true sense of uh, being able to get away with anything uh, I think that did surprise me. Yeah, because it's it's funny because there's so many films. Uh, I mean, I'm remembering them from the 80s, you know, relative to sort of my my age group, I suppose, where there were lots of films coming out of America about you know d dodgy fraternities and rich kids' dads bailing kids out, and it was always the poor kid on the scholarship that had to take the the blame and you know, and you know if you know the what's that one with Al Pacino? Um, Scent of a woman is the one that stands oh, yeah. out. Yeah, and but you, you don't really. It's only like as I'm listening to you, I'm like, oh, oh, actually, they they were based probably on someone's truth, an experience yeah. that happened to them, you know, or like. Even if they were the ones that actually were the rich kids, it was probably some story they were telling about how they destroyed some young man's scholarship, but you know because he wouldn't take the blame for them. Yeah, I mean, I do think it is—it's an old trope for a reason, and I, I guess I—it shows how naive I was because obviously you know that like there's you get you get what you can pay for when it comes to the U.S. legal system. But I think you sort of know that to a point and you sort of think in your head, well, eventually, you know, there's a crime big enough that like, no, you have to take the fall. But that's yeah, that's not that's not what really happened. What really happened was, um, you know, you can be a central cog in the biggest drug ring ever discovered on a college campus and, you know, the next year have a just as crazy of a mountain weekend party as you as you did the year before it is because it's it's weird because i've probably spent as many hours as anybody that i'll never get back in my life discussing conspiracy theories and <laughs> but the, the thing about that is I, i'm talking to somebody who's one experienced it for real and written a book about it and i i'm having to think deeply about i don't know these that there's a truth to this that that we see on so many different levels and that in in every country that there are kind of ruling classes and ruling families and it's i i sometimes wonder 
I had this thing that I remember saying once it was in one of my podcasts was somebody was talking about ruling families or something like that. And I said, you, you kind of got, there's, there's two levels to this or two, two different viewpoints. One is you can't really go down to Maureen and Doreen at Walmart stuck in shelves saying, what do you think about the global economics going on between Europe and Russia at the moment? And then wait for them to look that up and have a response because there are families who are just people who were just involved in that and have never done anything else other than that and that that's all yeah. they know and they don't know anything else but then that probably we like to think that they wouldn't um just be self-interest we like to think that they would be fair and proper and yeah. in, in a sense would be a better person than me because they have so much they control so much that they actually are interested in in the best interests of of everybody and of course the problem is they're just as flawed and they're the same sort of wankers that everybody are yeah and i think in some ways you know in every era of history the ruling class has to tell some story of why they're on top and not you and for a long time it was the divine right of kings right it was sort yeah. of well i'm on top because god chose me to be on top and, you know, I am but an extension of God's will. And that worked for a really long time. And you can't say that anymore. It doesn't, doesn't have the same ring to it, although, it, you know, maybe to some it does. But instead, I think what came was sort of this, this meritocratic story, which was um, I'm on top because I worked hard or my parents worked hard, but don't worry, if you work hard, you could be on top too. And you want me to have low taxes because you might be rich one day and you want to have low taxes or whatever it is. Mm. And I think ultimately, um, that, that story kind of gets rid of the idea of, uh, I'm gonna say it in my t Texas accent, noblesse ob oblige, <laughs> but you know the idea that like the no like to whom much is given, much is sort of required. The ruling class doesn't really learn that anymore. Into the same way, it's it's even interesting if you look at sort of fraternity sort of literature from you know 70 years ago. There was a lot more of that. There was a lot more of the sort of like you know you are the sort of uh, chosen elect sort of to that lead our country and because of that you need to do charity and because of that you need to be looking out for the common good and and it's not to say that was ever completely true because obviously it's a very checkered past but that lesson isn't even being taught anymore i think when you have the idea of uh this is a sort of free market system where anyone can win anyone can lose then if you're on top your only obligation is to keep winning and i think that's that can be kind of dangerous it's, it's it's just it's that is simplest form it's just self-preservation from one family to another yeah exactly and like in some ways you know that's not that surprising i think anyone who had something that they could keep for themselves and give to their kids like w would think about doing that um but the weird thing is that like we can't talk about it you know yeah even to say even to say that, uh, oh, a ruling class trying to preserve itself is a conspiracy theory. I was not a conspiracy. It's like you said, it's the most simple 
sort of base instinct that we have. So I don't know why that would be even conspiratorial to think that like, no, this is basic uh, human instinct, isn't it? Especially if you have children, you want exactly like you want the most, you have a lot of money. If you have a lot of money and you have a kid who, you know, might be going to jail, of course you would spend that money. If you're willing to spend that money on an Audi convertible, you would certainly spend that money to keep your kid out of jail. And so I don't think it's like that mind blowing. No, and I think, like you say, that the problem is, is we like to think that justice is equal. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, I guess, that it's a comforting thought to carry around, but it sort of goes against all of history. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. 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 Justice is in films, and that, that's it. That's the only yeah. place you get it. So, yeah, exactly. how how bad do you think the problem is now? Well, I I think it's as bad as it's ever been. I mean, so for instance, like often what I'm talking about when I'm talking about this book is Xanax and fraternities and the sort of drug problem. And that certainly is is getting worse. Just as fentanyl sort of flooding things and sort of starting in 2018, overdoses really started to go up and. Uh, the sort of one pill kill of taking a, you know, Xanax that was actually cut with something that's gotten much worse. But I think in terms of uh, fraternities and their sort of power, their prestige, their ability to stay on campus, it looked like in sort of 2016 that fraternities were on the ropes. You had this sort of national uh, sort of surge of fraternities getting kicked off campus. And you had, you know, the American media all of a sudden was doing all this hand wringing about the system and, it sort of continued through 2020 and the sort of George Floyd protest. People started writing about like Cap Alpha Order, which is one of the main fraternities in this book. You know, they have very explicit Ku Klux Klan ties. So if we're going back to the, the 20s. Um, so for a while, it seemed like the system was endangered. But since then, it's really proven to be incredibly resilient. All those chapters or most of them came back after a few years. Statistically, there are just as many kids in fraternities as there were like a decade ago. It's going up. And, you know, once again, when you have this much wealth concentrated in a system, 75% of donations, a university's president's job in a lot of ways is a fundraiser. So why would you get rid of this, you know, golden goose, isn't it? Hey, it's the golden yeah. goose. Exactly. And every so, kid turns up with a golden egg. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for non-elite schools, it's also a way of even attracting kids from elite backgrounds. Um, you know, kids from elite backgrounds who aren't going to the Ivies, they want schools with really good fraternities and sororities. That's like such a draw. And so even as a recruitment tool, it's it's pretty helpful. Is, as you were saying that, is that why things like IMBD and Wikipedia have people's alpha mate and, and all of that? on their pages <laughs> yeah i mean there is maybe something to that i mean it is funny in america people are always it's it's something that sticks with you way longer than you greek life and it still comes up like my, my mom is literally on a trip right now with some of her kappa friends from texas from you know the 80s they're like traveling together um and it's yeah it it it's not something that is just, oh, I did it when I was 18 and I never thought about it again. So it's almost like a tattoo. 
A little bit, yeah. I mean, it depends. But yeah, if you're in sort of the... It, it's a funny marker where, yeah, people will literally be like, oh, yeah, you know, we were we were Kappas together. And that signifies so much. And people just know what that means. And it continues to sort of uh, signify what you need it to signify to, to get into certain rooms. Yeah, and no pun intended, but that's the key, isn't it? It's that's the whole yeah. point of it. It's <laughs> this is that th this gets you into the right rooms. Definitely, yeah. And once again, I it's funny that that could even be surprising because it seems so apparent. And yet, when I looked at the way we talk about fraternities, it was it it was kind of weirdly missing. Yeah, because. It is, isn't it? It's because you you mentioned this earlier that that the thing about it is when people don't like you talking about it. But it's, I mean, we have a you probably have the same phrase in America. We have a phrase in the UK. It's called job for the boys, and it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's it's exactly what it says on the tin. We just never sort of dissect it. To, to, well, what does that really mean? It's just like well, job for the boys, isn't it? If, if you're one of the boys, you can have a job, and yeah. <laughs> But we, we we never look into the deep meaning because that's said by working class people as well. As in, like, yeah. you know, if you if you're one of the that's right, we'll sort you out a job. I know somebody that's hiring, and yeah, it, it's everybody does it. it. It's just I suppose the the greater issue is the one that you raise, where if you have that sort of influence and your parents have that sort of money you can get away with murder. Yeah. And, you know. And even if you yeah. don't, you won't be getting the same sentence as you and I. Yeah. And and that's, yeah. The When people talk about good old boys, that's sort of the American saying is the good old boy system. I think it's often thought of in terms of gender because it's in the word, you know, boys. But ultimately, what you're really talking about is power. And you're talking about if you're part of this sort of ruling class, then of course you're going to be ruled differently than if you're not. And like, it's, yeah, in, in that sense, it's it's pretty simple. Yeah, because it's, it's a simple equation, isn't it? If if somebody has ambitions and, and they want to move up the tree, say to be a supreme judge or something like that, and you have a father or mother from a family of influence and you get into trouble, you know, the, uh, if you're the person that convicts them heavily, well, you've just finished your career. Yeah. Well, it, it was, it was funny that during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, how much this sort of Greek life thing came to play. Um, you know, he went to an all boys school, kind of similar to the one I went to in, in Dallas, which is, already sort of this good old boy feeder you know it's kids from pretty elite boys from pretty elite families and then he was at one of the best fraternities in yale and during his hearing a lot of the senators that were standing up for him were also fraternity guys and you just saw it all like right it's there. just the work the senators oh, just, just some yeah. of the most powerful group of people in america Exactly. And there are, and, you know, it's just like, uh, and, but there was this weird familiarity when he was describing his like senior year of high school and the sort of like weightlifting and like drinking beers with the boys, watching Fast Times at Richmond Eye and Old and uh, Animal House. Like, I was like, wow, this sounds a lot like my senior year of high school. But then, like, what happened, uh, 
at the when I was in college is someone created uh, an EDM remix that matched up Avicii's levels, a Waka Flocka Flame song, and the Kavanaugh testimony into this like drinking song. And there's some clever people out there. Yeah, I know. But guys I knew from, you know, my high school and like fraternity guys would like, you know, turn it on while playing Pong, you know, beer Pong. And like it just the sort of, uh, yeah, the resonance just rolled on. It was, yeah, that was a very out of body experience hearing that at a pregame. I'm still wondering the senators standing up for you in court. Because, you know, like if, if I got into trouble, the best I can probably do is ask my next door neighbor for a reference because he's known me for 25 years. And, yeah. you know, and he's, he's a retired major. So he, he might have some. Yeah, you know, but it's not the same social standing. Um, you know, I, I can get some good references off my bosses, um, depending on the crime. But when you're sat there in court and you've got senators speaking up on your behalf, who's going to go against that yeah i mean yeah it's it's just it's a different thing entirely and the whole you know meat of what they were talking about was sort of his sort of frat boy like demeanor and from like sexual assault obviously but also like his drinking and like how he was at fraternity parties at yale and like the whole thing it was almost like watching the whole system up on trial and you know the system won and that's not but the system came out and said, oh, yeah. don't worry, we'll, we'll take care of this. Exactly, yeah. Um, so what, what are you working on next? Well, right now I'm I'm working on the screenplay for the, the book, Sony's Options, um, it to be a film, and so starting work on that. Um, but besides that, just trying to figure out what I'm writing about next, so we'll see. What, what's... There's so much kind of going on in the world at the moment largely you know probably as much as anything to just do with simple things like podcasts youtubes and so- social media you know everyone suddenly you know i actually can figure out find out what's going on in america just just by watching anything you know sure what, what are the areas that you would like to look into yeah i mean so right now i'm the world i'm actually thinking about writing a second book about is the sort of world of EDM music, which is, you know, bigger than if in terms of Spotify streams, uh, rap and rock put together and has never really been taken that seriously by writers. And I think like um, similarly to fraternities, similar to fraternities is this sort of subculture that people sort of hold up their nose when they think about, but it actually, I think, explains a lot about our, our current times. Could you explain EDM for me? It's oh, electronic no. dance it, music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll just so, make sure so, yeah. it's in the right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, which obviously runs the gamut from you know cool techno stuff in Berlin to you know bottle service in Vegas. It's sort of a yeah. like a vast culture involving a lot of different things. But that's something I'm thinking about. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's the the sort of the joy or the pleasure of of this book is as dark as it is, is sort of like immersing yourself in this world that's close to outsiders, um, that, uh, once you get inside, it's just full of sort of absurdities and these characters that you think shouldn't be allowed to exist, but they do. Um, and finding a way in to where you can really bring a reader inside that I think is 
you know, it's one of the great pleasures of fiction, but I also think it's one of the great pleasures of, of nonfiction when it's done well. It's just that immersive yeah. quality. I, I often find one of the best pleasures with nonfiction is you can't believe it happened. Yeah. So, you, you, you know, you, you turn in the story and you're like, no way. No yeah. way. How the yeah. hell did they get away with that? Definitely, definitely. And I think that's that's certainly what I felt in this story was as a reporter at each sort of turn, I was like, how is this true? How is this true? And it keep fractaling further and further out of control. And then, you know, you check the police files and you're like, oh, no, this happened. Um, and it is something that nonfiction really can provide. It's like, yeah, this is this is a true story, believe it or not. Um, and yeah, it sort of widens your sense of the world a little bit. So do you, on the, in terms of the screenplay, did you have a, an idea of how you want to portray it? Yeah. I mean, so Sony's already, you know, had a, some really nice drafts done of the screenplay. And so I'm just sort of consulting, adding my, my two cents. Um, but yeah, I think Mikey as a main character very much can carry, I mean, he carried the book. I certainly think he can carry a film. And so it's just trying to get inside what makes him this sort of main character in this wild story and then structuring everything from that, that question. One of the things that is, is always interesting to me is that often when you have this level of sort of drug use somebody has to have a connection at, to, to someone at street level yeah yeah and that's that's something that the dark web really changed because it used to be if you wanted to deal drugs on a college campus you basically had to go to the quote-unquote other side of the tracks and find someone connected to a cartel or a gang who would be your quote-unquote plug mm. and this was sort of every parent's nightmare. They're like, oh, I don't want my sweet Sigma Chi going, you know, to South Dallas to, you know, meet a gang member. And, and it, it, you know, I think it kept a lot of guys from getting involved. But now with the dark web, without leaving campus Wi-Fi, you can just get on and, and have, you know, Xanax shipped to your dorm room, literally to the campus mail center, you know, hidden in DVD jackets or even just in a, in a cardboard box. Something a DE agent told me is that at this point, the U.S. Postal Service is the biggest drug trafficker in the world because it's so easy to just mail anything and the system is way too overburdened to sort of check in on things. That having been said, you can get Xanax pretty easily on the dark web. Cocaine in bulk, it's still better if you find someone, like you said, on the street level. And that's sort of Mikey's story is he was sort of, you know, he was in Atlanta in the nightlife and the rap scene, uh, meeting with cartel sources, and he was sort of the the Mexico connection for all these fraternities, and he was sort of this bridge between worlds. He could really thrive in you know the country club fraternity world, but also he was going to these nightclubs with famous Atlanta rappers, and he was kind of doing it all. And yeah, that that takes a different kind of character. Yeah, it is because. Drugs have always been classless. It's, it's one of the few things in life where you, you could literally be a homeless heroin addict, sort of shooting up next to a billionaire. 
Yeah. In, in the same slummy apartment in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And I think, you know, drugs have also always been very class coded. If you look at the difference between, for instance, cocaine laws and crack laws, you know, you're yeah. talking about ultimately the same, more or less same chemical. Obviously, the release mechanism and speed is different, but ultimately, like, why should crack be punished any differently than cocaine? And yet, for a long time, it, it was. And that's that's race and class coded, 100%. Um, and, but Xanax, interestingly, really is kind of a trans class drug because you, you see it in these fraternities. It's also big in rap music. It's also, you know, it's also sort of the hidden... Uh, sort of factor in the opiate epidemic. 40% of opiate overdoses, people are actually combining it with Xanax or benzodiazepines to the point where addiction specialists are, are not calling it the opiate crisis anymore. They're calling it the polypharmacy crisis because so, so often people are combining drugs. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it is, it's a problem that really reaches into all, all corners of society. Yeah, it was slightly slightly different in the UK in the sense that we things like the Xanax are not as readily available in America because we don't have the same pharmaceutical private healthcare. Yeah. You know, yeah. so if, if you, you're not going to get it on the NHS, so again, actually, ironically, back to elites um, who can afford to have private doctors who will write them private prescriptions, and you can only go to a, a few selected um, pharmacies. To, uh, to put that prescription in um, and I, I know this from personal experience because I used to live with somebody who um, had a private doctor and ironically was given Xanax and when he went to the local chemist pharmacy they had no idea what it was and this was about wow. 2000, 2001, 2002 and he had to go to uh, Sloan, Square, uh, Sloan Square in West London and go wow. down that way and yeah, they, 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 not only did they know what Xanax was they had it on the shelf and that's, um that's and ironically his doctor would have been around the corner so that that's kind of you know when you come to where him and i lived it's, uh, yeah our chemist had no idea what xanax was <laughs> never heard of that's it. very funny um very funny. but the, there is as well as that there's I, I remember from sort of my 20s and stuff and you still hear it now people can talk about pokeheads you know yeah that's fine but you talk about a heroin addict and that's a very different there's a lot of snobbery involved Definitely, definitely, yeah. Very um, frowned upon. Yeah. And something that's interesting about the, the sort of quote-unquote polypharmacy crisis, there was an addiction specialist at Stanford who was telling me, if you look at addiction in generations sort of before mine, you were sort of known as uh, having your one substance. So you're an alcoholic, or you were a cokehead, or you were a pill popper, or you're a pophead, yeah. or, or whatever it was. And now what's common is sort of these customized combinations where you sort of do everything in one night. Uh, the, the phrase these guys use is the sidecar, like, you know, the little rig that you put next to a motorcycle. Yeah, yeah. Use, uh, it's something you've, I feel like you've only seen cartoons. But uh, Xanax is a great sidecar drug. You know, it's like you combine it with three beers and it feels like you had 12 beers. You take it after a few lines of Coke and you don't feel paranoid anymore. You combine it with, you know, you're smoking and you get much higher and, and you combine it with opiates and it deepens the euphoria. And it, it's all these sort of combinations. And certainly in the reporting for this book, I never really met people who were like, oh, I have my one drug. 
and I stick to it, it was sort of like I'm always mixing, matching, mingling, trying different things, trying different combinations. And ultimately, at its most extreme, that's how opiates get involved. Yeah. Um, but it's very different than the sort of old school paradigm of like, oh, I do coke, but I would never touch heroin. Now it's more like, oh, I'm, you know, it's still a lot of guys would never touch heroin, but the, instead they're doing, you know, oxys or something, which is in some senses. Ironically, uh, we used to have standards when it comes to drugs taking. Now it's become <laughs> classless. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's funny. It's a full circle for this conversation. But uh, yeah. Um, before before we finish, I, I just want to ask you something. Um, so I'm going to some. I ask everybody, which is completely random. But before that, I, you know, I'm going to ask you because we're talking about pharmaceutical countries, uh, companies, and stuff. And something I just don't understand about America, and it's not private healthcare, because the idea that the NHS is great is a load of bullshit. The, the 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 NHS just to do I mean it it just absorbs money and just so yeah. inefficiently run it's unbelievable. Yeah. But the thing I I don't understand about the American healthcare system and the cost of drugs and and stuff like that from the pharmaceutical countries uh, companies the big pharma is everybody in America talks about it as a problem. Yeah. So I don't understand why people just don't haven't cracked down on it. And I know that's like over simplistic, especially with everything we've been talking about. But it's just like I've I've never heard an American not be able to talk about the problem with private health insurance and how much you get ripped off, how much big pharma is behind it in the cost of selling uh, the yeah the cost of selling drugs. And yet everyone's just like, well, here we go. Well, it it is it is funny. You're totally right. It is like something that is loathed across the entire political spectrum. I don't think you, it's short of a, a, some people who work at pharmacy companies and healthcare lobbyists, you'll never meet someone who's like, oh yeah, we have a good healthcare system, no, no matter what other views they hold. But I do think those healthcare lobbyists, they're incredibly powerful. They have so much money behind them. And if you look at, for instance, the fight for changing our daylight savings time, uh, laws. Um, somebody needs to corroborate me on this because I I heard this at a you know a dinner the other day. But someone was telling me because you know, I don't know if you remember, but like a year or two ago, it looked like we were finally going to go permanently into you know more daylight and change yeah. our daylight saving time laws. And there are all these statistics about like depression and car crashes and sleep disorders that um, the increased darkness causes. And so it just seemed like this, once again, a bipartisan sort of like everyone's like, okay, let's fix this because we don't need to, you know, all suffer so that a few farmers can have more light in the morning. Um, and then it quietly died, the, the sort of bill. And what I heard was uh, lobbyists for sleep medication basically managed to get the bill killed because they were basically, you know, they benefit from people's sleep disorders. And so, you know, it's a sign of self-preservation. Exactly. But it's a sign of a very sick society that, you know, uh, their argument basically is we benefit from people's sickness. So let's keep people sick. Let's keep the laws to cause people suffering so that they need to buy our goods. Um, but it worked. And I think uh, that's definitely part of it is the the sort of entrenched interests. Um, there's so much money at stake. It's sort of like the what Eisenhower described as the industrial military industrial complex 
Um, yeah. There's just, there's so much money at stake that it becomes, you know, every little individual shaking their fist doesn't, doesn't really do that much. No, no, for sure. So lastly, and, and this is just very random, uh, using your imagination, if you could go to any place in time, anywhere, where would you go? What car would you drive? And what would you be listening to on the radio? Oh, well. <sighs> well, I mean, it would be, it would definitely be traveling back in time to see some live music. I don't know whether it would be like, uh, you know, going to the, the Hacienda nightclub in the, in the 90s and seeing like <laughs> Sasha play or yeah, yeah. Uh, seeing, seeing the dead, Grateful Dead on their 1977 tour maybe their europe 72 tour um it'd be some the 90 yeah I, th I think i you know i would probably i've spent so much time listening to live music from the 70s and just sort of fetishizing what it would be like i think following the the dead on like their 72 or 74 tour uh say in a shelby vintage shelby yeah uh, j just following them around the east coast or something would, would probably be the dream um i wouldn't be listening to the den on the radio because i would be seeing them at night so um maybe to get over not being able to go to the hacienda in the 90s i'd be listening to you know apex twin or something I don't know. nice that's perfect thank you very much thank you i really enjoyed this and there it is there's max and all about his book, America, Corruption, Conspiracy, Controlling Families. And when you get down to the depths of it, a lot of it's just simple, as tragic as it is, self-preservation and what people will do to another person to stay ahead of them. So, that being said, thank you as always for listening. If you can, please like, subscribe and share. But if nothing else, wherever you are from, whatever you believe, Please take care and be safe.